when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Michael Kokor has made some of the best political documentaries about UK politics, covering prime ministers from Howard Macmillan to Boris Johnson. From the 1970s to today, he has taken viewers into the corridors of power and tried to help us understand what makes politicians tick. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Cockrell. His new book, Unmasking Our Leaders, takes us into a career of political journalism and interviews regarding not just politicians and MPs and ministers, but also the secret world of Whitehall. Cockrell looks back on the leaders he's met and what he's learned from them. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for asking me. So I just wanted to begin with how you got into political journalism a fair few years ago, if you don't mind me saying, that you've been at the BBC an awful long time ago. What compelled you to start getting into this question of what goes on behind the scenes? I don't know. I suppose I was brought up in a a political household. My, My parents were sort of slightly bohemian. My mother wrote plays, uh, one of which uh, was seen by the Lord Chamberlain at the time as, as, uh, as a dirty play because there was, it was a, a censorship of, of the theatre. And so she had to put it on uh, at the Arts Theatre Club. And my dad served in naval intelligence during the war and then became a, a professor. And in our house, they were both Labour voters, uh, and various people would drop in from the worlds of journalism and show business, and uh, we were always talking about politics. It sounds like like quite a glamorous upbringing in that sense, <laughs> to sort of from a very early age, to have access to sort of these people and what makes them tick. And you obviously worked at the BBC as a foreign correspondent for many years before you started working for Panorama. The style of documentaries that you've made, no one else has really done similar things. What took you to down this particular path of trying to go in-depth on figures, but also how things work? I suppose I've always been fascinated by... You know, that relationship between personality and power and um, how much difference, you know, as I was growing up, you know, would the Second World War have happened without Hitler? The dictatorial politics there was um, in those days, in, in, in the 30s, say, like Franco or Mussolini, it's a bit like an opera. Um, there, there's the crowd scene and there's the, the, the tenor on the balcony and then there's chaos. Now, I want to begin with one of my favourite documentaries of yours, which is possibly going back the earliest in terms of politics, which was about Harold Macmillan in the famous Night of the Long Night, essentially, when he sacked half his cabinet in a very drastic move there. Is that the first prime minister you've made a documentary about, the earliest prime minister, I should say? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, Macmillan, I first saw Macmillan on my first day at Oxford. I went to the Freshers' Fair 
And it was the day that Macmillan won a, a landslide in 1959. And I saw all the, the conservative association, all kind of floppy-haired public school boys, all chalking up the, the gains on a, on, a, on a blackboard. And then I went over to the Labour Club, where they looked sad and morose, and they changed um, their first meeting. Instead of it being priorities for the new government, it was Labour, psychologically happier in opposition. <laughs> I thought this and nothing's really changed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, nothing's really changed. Indeed, and, and going back to Howard Macmillan, that film that you did about that yes, night sure. long lives there, and... That was an act of political brutality that was obviously a prime minister who felt he was on the down, he was in the corner, and decided to sort of really knife some of his closest colleagues. And I recall in that film of yours, Enoch Powell, who was obviously the very controversial Conservative MP at that time for his views on race and the like. There's a great quote and picture in my head where he's sort of about the butcher, if I recall. Yes, exactly, exactly. There was an interview that was done with, with Macmillan around the time where he said a lot of the people are saying how terrible it was, but, but actually the terror and the pain and the heartache is not the people who have been sacked because they, they will get another job. It's the person who has to make the, these terrible decisions. It is extraordinary when you think just the brutality you'll have witnessed over the years and how what a rough game politics is. And yep. obviously, I think many of your films were first in the 1970s, which is a fascinating decade. And I feel like it's quite forgotten in, in politics today because there's so much focus on the Margaret Thatcher years in the 1980s. And obviously, again, in your book, you've written about Ted Heath as well, who is a very curious Prime Minister because obviously his one great achievement that would have lasted mm. was taking the UK into the European communities and that has been overturned four decades later. And I've read this lecture Michael Heseltine gave quite recently trying to defend the legacy of Ted Heath. When you look back on him as a leader, do you think he'll be remembered more kindly at all by history or just as a bit of a flop? You're right that, that taking Britain into what was then called the common market you know, was a historic thing. Prime ministers get remembered if they if they can make the political weather, as uh, Joe Chamberlain said. And whatever they said about Ted Heath until you know, until the Brexit referendum, he did change everything in terms of Britain's relations uh, with trade and foreign policy and and economy. And that legacy has now been taken from him. I think one of my favourite final Ted Heath anecdotes was the last Conservative conference before he died in 2001 and uh, the party was obviously to pretty low ebb at that point and they were, had the Conservatives trying to look very modern had some Ikea armchairs on oh, stage yes. yeah. and Margaret Thatcher and Ted Heath are sitting backstage and Margaret Thatcher goes have you seen those ghastly chairs who'd want to sit in them what do you think Ted and he goes oh well I think they're rather nice actually <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just despite her which takes us on to Margaret Thatcher as well. It is incredible the standing Margaret Thatcher still has within the Conservative Party that, you know, um, I hesitate to say this, but I was born just six months before she fell from power. And yet conversations I still have every day with Tory MPs will refer to what would Margaret Thatcher have done? Mm. This is Margaret Thatcher's legacy. Why do you think her grip is still so strong on the party today? I suppose she was the kind of Conservative that so many, and especially older members of the Tory party and older MPs, you know, they wanted. You know, she she turned out to be anti anti Europe. Even she almost saw the budget itself as like a um, a housewife uh, doing her budgeting. There was, but also she 
grew immensely in, in, in office when I first interviewed her. I remember saying to her afterwards, you know, you, you seem to act when you see the cameras like a, a primitive tribesman as if it was going to take your soul away. And she said, yes, but I've learned that what you people want is a positive answer and I will always try to give you that. And she, and she became a mistress of the media without ever liking it. I remember in the 1987 election when there were lots of big interviews by people like Robin Day during the election campaign. And I said, what do you think of the, these big interviews? She said, I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. But she learned how to do them. Because I remember watching on uh, on YouTube, there's a lot of Brian Walden interviews yes. from that era, and yeah. there's one there when things are just after the resignation of Nigel Lawson Absolutely. and things are getting very difficult there. But one thing you do see about Margaret Thatcher is she did love the debate. And one yes. thing that I'm sure you've seen throughout your career is, is the sense of loyalty and uniformity in Westminster has increased. And the idea of going in and having an argument about something seems to have declined. So I'm quite surprised, actually, that you say she didn't like those interviews, because I thought you'd think she'd love nothing better to go and have a nice row with Brian Walden about politics and her standing in the economy. Yeah, Brian Walden was different. She didn't have rows with him until the the, the very end, exactly at the time after Nigel Lawson, her chancellor, resigned. She had arguments, but she didn't have rows with with, with Brian, and and he he was her favourite interviewer until he kind of nailed her to the wall about Lawson, who said that... um, her special advisor had made it impossible to do his job because the city didn't know what was happening. The prime minister's special advisor was saying, or was it what the chancellor was saying? And she said, what's got into you today, Brian? You're not normally like this. <laughs> she, she thought somehow the terms of trade had been changed, but it was such a big uh, story and uh, it was the first time she was going to talk about it. From the not just that film in 2008, but the other films and explorations you've made of Margaret Thatcher and the Margaret Thatcher years, what's the one thing that you think is misunderstood about it? Because there's so many, you know, Margaret Thatcher is one of those people everybody has a very clear idea on. You know, people lionise her, they hate her. There's actually not that much nuance. People can say, well, on the one hand, she revitalised the economy, but on the other hand, created mass unemployment and social rest. You know, do you think there's a nuance in there? What's the sort of thing that you would take away from covering the Thatcher years? I suppose one of the things that was interesting were, were, was how flirtatious she could be. Sometimes you would go... Did you encounter that? Yeah. You'd go into number 10 to do an interview and she would come towards you and put her hand on your tie and run her hand down your tie and say, what a wonderful silk tie that is. And she she was, in the 1979 election, she she was almost coquettish. I said to her, I've been following you during this uh, election, and there sometimes seem to be two Mrs. Thatchers, one on the, the conference platform full of passionate rhetoric and ideas, and then the one uh, on the, the shop floor and on the high street as you are campaigning, endlessly interested in the minutiae of people's lives. How many Mrs. Thatchers are there? And she said, oh, three at least. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Which of the three? And she said, there's the intellectual one, there's the intuitive one, and there's the one at home. And she said it in such a such a, uh, a deep voiced way. Her, she'd been given voice lessons to bring down the pitch of her voice. So Robin Day, the, the famous interviewer, as he was watching the interview go out, said, "Not not in public, 
the untold story of the election. Margaret Thatcher's having an affair with Michael Cockrell. <laughs> now, let's move on to the next sort of standing premise, which is obviously Tony Blair, which yeah. you've spent a lot of time making films about, watching in action, all the rest of it. And I'm sure you've watched the recent Blair Brown series about the new Labour years. And one of the lines that struck me from that was um, Richard Wilson, who was then Cabinet Secretary, mm. um, who I think fell out with Mr Blair quite spectacularly. Yes. He said he saw the whole of government as a drama within his head and that Tony was playing out the scripts, the characters, the scenery change throughout all that. Do you think that's right about how Mr. Bear looked at government? Because he was obviously a very different character from Margaret Thatcher, but also, I think, shared some similarities. He certainly had multiple personalities, which you could see, in depending whether he was in Parliament, whether he was at the Labour conference, whether he was in Sedgefield, whether he was in Islington. There was an, a very complex character. Yes, I think that, that that's true. I first met um, Tony Blair in 1982, the Falklands War, and I was covering him in a by-election in Beaconsfield, which was really going to be an indicator of of what the public thought of the Falklands crisis. At that stage, our men were sailing uh, 8,000 miles down to the South Atlantic, but battle had not been joined. Tony Blair was the the Labour candidate in this rock-solid Tory seat, and the, the first words I ever wrote about him was the Labour candidate Tony Blair seems exactly the kind of young man that uh, the matrons of Beaconsfield might like to see escorting their daughter to the young Conservative ball. I thought at that time, you know, he, he had this huge grin. I thought, there's someone I'll never see again. He'll lose by a landslide and I'll never see him again. But I did. And once he became Labour leader... It took me six years to persuade him to let us into to Downing Street um, to do something about the Labour spin machine, not that that's what they called it. But he thought that the Tories were making as much about Labour spin as uh, Labour had been making about Tory sleaze. That documentary, which I think was called News from Number 10, when you went inside the lobby briefing system, and obviously I think it's a little bit more transparent now than it was then, but it was um, a very sort of covert system. It was only Alistair Campbell when he came that you could actually quote the Prime Minister's spokesperson because a lot of people, when they join the lobby, and have said, people have come to me and said, you know, what would you look? And I said, well, you should watch this and you can see, because obviously Alistair Campbell was very adept as Number 10 Director of Communications. There's probably nobody who's been in there since who's been as good as wielding the print media around his little finger and pushing things in the right direction there. Because there's a scene in that documentary when Blair walks into the press office and the camera news obviously say to Mr Blair, you know what's going on? And he says, well, don't ask me, ask him. And I thought the power dynamic there is absolutely fascinating and one that I don't think has been repeated since. It was an extraordinary power dynamic. And and as you say, that that shot he walked not into the press room but into Alistair Campbell's right. own own office and he was wearing shirt sleeves and Alistair was behind the desk in a suit and it looked like you know the guilty schoolboy coming in to to see the headmaster it was interesting because I, I talked to him about how big an influence Alistair Campbell was on him and he's he said you've got to get a grip on stories if they if they start otherwise it's halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on but you know I don't spend much time thinking about spin or anything like that. I, <laughs> I only think about 
what I can do which for the, is for the best for the country. And, you know, people can believe that or, or not, but, but that's, the, that's the case. And, and Alastair Gamble then said, and that's why you've spent the last seven minutes talking to Michael Cockrell. <laughs> He'd blown his own client out of the water, which is not what a PR man is supposed to do. Do you think history will be kinder to Mr Blair at all when you look at where the Labour Party has gone since he left office? Because obviously post-Iraq, Mr Blair something was very much damaged and then I think Tony Blair Associates and, and his money-making private sector activities have obviously been highly controversial. And then obviously we got into the Brexit wars much later when Mr Blair was a big advocate for Remain and the second referendum. But where Labour's gone now post-Jeremy Corbyn, it feels like we're almost having a, a, re- a reunion of the new Labour era, that if you look at Keir Starmer's most recent reshuffle, the most obvious thing was that people who now describe themselves as Blairites, such as Wes Streeting and Bridget Phillipson, who are both in the shadow cabinet, shadow health and shadow education, you know, Blairite is no longer a term of offence within the Labour Party. It feels like a sort of coming to terms very gradually with what Mr Blair did in office. When you think that, that only a few years ago at Labour Party conference when Tony Blair's name was was mentioned. They booed at the at the party conference. Yeah, he he was persona non grata for 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 a long time. Yeah, I mean, in in the end, I, I think that that what Keir Starmer is is learning, which which is what Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, and Tony Blair absolutely sort of recognised that you've got to appeal to Middle England if you only appeal to the left. Or as, as Tories, only to the right, and and you can't get Middle England. You're not going to win an election. Such a bizarre lesson that you'd think it would one that Labour might have come to terms with before <laughs> that. Now, after Mr. Blair, you obviously had the David Cameron era as well. He's another prime minister who's not got the best of legacies at the moment on two fronts. Obviously, you've got the Brexit question, but then also, I think, his domestic reform agenda and the Conservatives over the past couple of years since Boris Johnson took a hold have gone in a very different direction in terms of spending huge amounts of money. And my view is that a lot of what Boris Johnson is doing is directly overturning what David Cameron did in terms of austerity that, you know, this is, has meant to, we're recording this on what was meant to have been crime week in Downing Street, but has been a whole load of other controversies. But that's <laughs> pouring money into dealing with gangs and drug issues that have appeared over the last decade. You know, the government spending £150 billion on new white horse spending because of the issues that developed over austerity. What's your view on retrospect of Mr. Cameron and how he will be remembered? One of the hardest things is when you stop being Prime Minister is what you do and what happens to your reputation in terms of what you subsequently do. And and David Cameron is one of those people who so far his reputation has gone down and down since he stopped being Prime Minister, mainly through, through self-inflicted wounds. Boris hated austerity. Or what and he, did at well, the time, I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. And he hated the whole policy of... Osborne and, and Cameron's austerity, what he, what he called the drink-your-own-urine austerity policy. I think you're right that, that there's been a dismantling of a lot of what, what Cameron was doing, but once they decided on that, that austerity policy, they didn't have much chance of, of leaving a, a better legacy. They, they would say that they saw the economy through that, mm. and so he's, he, Boris is the beneficiary of their, their austerity. 
Well, I want to come on to that because your documentary on Boris Johnson, I think, is absolutely one of your best and gives such an insight into a man who is so difficult to understand. And there's so many things about it I'd want to ask you, but you've obviously got the very early footage of Boris's childhood, which yeah. I think was never shown before. And it shows you what a competitive, tight-knit family the Johnsons are. And I think the psyche of Boris Johnson and his siblings says a lot about his personality. I couldn't agree with you more. There's, uh, Rachel Johnson, his younger sister, said that, that, that Boris, who, who's, the, who's the, the eldest of, of the children, said, for Boris, everything's a competition. Life is always a competition, and he has got to be top. And we would have games, you know, climbing up trees, catching tennis balls, all that kind of thing. And Boris always had to win, and, and races. And when I was making the film, I went to Boris's now somewhat notorious father, Stanley Johnson, and asked if he had any home movies of, of the Johnsons as they were growing up. He said, no, no, nothing, nothing like that. We never did anything like that, nothing like that. And then I said, you sure? Because many, many people do have home movies of their children growing up. Well, no, no, well, there's a box up in the attic. Let me, let me just go up there. And he comes down from the attic with a box full of home movies of Boris and, and Rachel and the, the Johnsons all, all growing up. He said, well, oh, you wouldn't be able to do anything without that. So it's an uh, old-fashioned um, format. I said, well, if, you, if I could take them away, we can see if we can. He said, oh, it'd be impossible. And then, there they were, these amazing shots of, of this, this troop of blonde children uh, sort of running races up, going swimming up there, playing all kinds of games climbing up the trees and reading competitions and all that. They were very, very competitive as, as, as they grew up. And obviously the most famous line from that documentary is the one that led us to really where the country is now because <laughs> for such a long period of time, you know, Boris Johnson had used the lines about his chance of being Prime Minister are being reincarnated as an olive or going into outer space and all these various purple prose things to saying that it's never going to happen. But then in your documentary is the very famous line, which is that, you know, if you're in a rugby scrum, again, a very Boris Johnson metaphor thinking back to his days at Eton. If you're in a rugby scrum and if the ball comes loose from the back, which it won't, but if it does, you'd want to have a crack at it. When he said that, you would have known straight away that's him saying, right, he's going to go for it. He wants to be prime minister. He wants to make it happen. Did it surprise you that he said that? Because that metaphor, he would have thought about that for months. That's very interesting because we, we, I spent a long time trying to get something about his ambitions and all that. And he was very careful and repeated all, all those, those clever lines about being reincarnated as a Frisbee and things like that. But I asked him the question, but would you like to be Prime Minister? He said, like? Well, I'd like to be the lead guitarist in a rock band. I'd like to be an impressionist painter. I'd like to be a composer. But would you like to be Prime Minister? Well, very, very difficult job being Prime Minister. As the sins transpired. <laughs> but if the ball were to come loose from the back of the scrum, it'd be great to have a go at it. But it's not going to happen. So it was very interesting that he's... Because I also asked him another question in, the, in that film, a question I've asked um, nine or ten future prime ministers. Do you have any doubts about your ability to fulfil the role of prime minister? Ted Heath said, no, should I? Uh, <laughs> Mrs Thatcher said, doubts. Well, of course, when I, when I look at some of the men who held this job, I think I could do it. 
David Cameron said, if I'd had any doubts, I wouldn't have uh, stood for leadership of the Tory party. But Boris said, I think people who don't have doubts or anxieties about their ability to do things probably have something terrifyingly awry. We all have worries and uncertainties, and I think it's a very tough job being Prime Minister. So it's interesting. He was the only one who admitted to having doubts about the, his ability to, to, to be Prime Minister. Well, this brings me to my final question for you, Michael, which is, there is one thing, when you look at not just Prime Ministers, but politicians that you've interviewed over the decades, there is one thing I've had is that nearly everybody who goes into politics has an issue or something not right with their personality or their life and they go into politics to try and address this. Some people have bereavements early in their life, they have a poor upbringing or they feel somehow that life has not treated them well and the desire to go into politics and achieve those positions is a way of addressing that. Have you seen that in people that you've interviewed? Yeah, I think that that's right. If you, if you Talk, go back to, to Harold Macmillan, and he told me this, that, that, that he served in the First World War and was at the Battle of the Somme, and he said that, that at the end of the, the First World War, of his class at Balliol, who read classics, class of 20, 19 of them were dead, and he was the sole survivor, and he was determined to do something about this. And it was the first time he'd really met working-class people um, in the trenches. So I think, yeah, it's interesting. What, what is it that makes you want to be the leader of the country? A lot of it, I think, does go back to their early days. And often the interesting thing about prime ministers is that the thing which is seen to be their, their strongest point comes back to, to hit them and haunt them. Gordon Brown, in a way, was an example of, of someone who, who said, who made, made his, his reputation as chancellor, that, that, that he had effectively um, abolished the laws of economic gravity, and yet the, he, the, the terrible crash came. You know, there was no more, no more boom and bust, but there was a boom and bust. And I think the same is true as well with Boris Johnson, that obviously he came in as a great campaigner, someone who's very popular in the, the so-called Heineken tour, who can reach parts of the population, others can't, but not necessarily the most experienced governor, not necessarily the person with the biggest grip on power. And in some ways, his popularity, when that wanes, which I think you know inevitably will happen, that is going to be the thing that probably does for him more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I asked... Uh... Boris a long time ago about his time at Eton where he would never learn his lines. He was in the school play and would never learn his lines. And it turned into a hilarious exchange between him and the prompter. And I said to him, is this, um, this a lesson for later life that you realise you could get more laughs by not knowing your lines than, than by knowing them? And he, he said, as a general tactic in life, if that's what you're getting at, it's often useful to give the slight impression that you're deliberately pretending not to know what's going on because the re reality may be that you don't know what's going on, but people won't be able to tell the difference. Michael Cockwell, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. Michael Cockwell's book, Unmasking Our Leaders, Confessions of a Political Documentary Maker, is out now. 
If you like this podcast, then also please do subscribe. You can find through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you normally get them to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also do love a positive rating. We'll be back next week with our regular programming of Payne's Politics. But until then, Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and a very happy new year. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.